I'm, I'm a big fan of blank, unclimbable rock because there's somebody who's going to come along in the future and figure out how to do it. And if we chip some holds or drill some holds to, to make it in our image, then we're robbing a future climber of something really special. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we talk to athletes, adventurers, and business owners from around the world of adventure sports. Whether you're climbing Mount Everest, starting a bike shop, or getting up off your couch to take your kids hiking for the first time, we want you to have the motivation and inspiration you need to chase that next adventure. The Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by Camp Crate, the leaders in fully planned self-guided backpacking adventures, as well as backpacking gear rental. You can check them out at campcrate.net. Hey folks, hope you had a good weekend. This is Mason and you are listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm sure you already know that, but I figured I'd remind you just in case <laughs> just in case it was a slow and groggy Monday morning for you. Uh, well, we hope to lift your spirits today with a very, very good episode with a guy who was there for a lot of the big firsts in the climbing world. His name is Jeff Smoot, and we do a little intro in the interview itself, but I figured I'd tell a little bit more about him. Um, he, he has a book, a, a memoir, essentially, of his stories and experiences in, the, in climbing in the 70s and 80s. Uh, in his new book that just came out a few days ago, uh, April 1st, so a week ago, called Hang Dog Days. You can find that on Amazon. You can find it at Mountaineer's Books, and it's his stories as well as uh, like the, the the race to the first five fourteen route. Which, uh, if you're familiar with climbing, um, you'll know what that means. If you're not, it's the Yosemite Decimal System. It's how they rate um, the difficulty of climbs. You can just look it up. We won't get super into it um, in this intro, but. But the book is his stories. It is uh, the kind of watching the revolution of climbing take place, going from this underground sport to mainstream and to see so many of the firsts. Um, there's a lot of name dropping in this uh, interview. There's a lot of uh, climbing lingo. And there's just, uh, Jeff was just had a really cool uh, youth, really neat youth where he got to see so many of these things firsthand and to witness them and be there and meet the people that were hugely influential in building the foundation for what climbing is today and what it continues to be and what it will, it will be in the future. It's, it's so it's a really cool account and we only scratched the surface in this interview. So if you want the bigger story and more detail, you're going to have to get the book. Also, Please, please, please apply for our adventure grant. If you are doing an adventure this year and you want a thousand dollars to be paid for uh, of your trip, which for a lot of adventures that can go a really long way, go to our website. Right on the left hand side, there is an application. Um, shouldn't take more than five ten minutes to fill out. It's as much detail as you want to put in there. And if we're interested, we'll we'll contact you for more info. But please, if you know anybody that's planning anything, we want people's trips funded, and we want to make sure that there are not only academic scholarships out there and grants, we want there to be adventure grants as well, because this is there's nothing that educates you more than adventure. I'm telling you right now, adventure of all sorts, whether that's you know starting a business, starting a family, running across America, 
biking to wherever, you know, it's, it's all the same. It's all adventure and it's all going to teach you so, so much about yourself and about life. So if you know somebody planning one, get them in touch. Also, thank you to our new patrons. We got a couple new patrons. Uh, if you would like to become a patron, you can support the show. It's $5 a month is what we ask. And you can go to patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast, find out more. Um, also, you know, with our ads, with people's info that are interview or that are guests on the show, all of that information is always in the show notes. So if you didn't hear what someone said at the end, or you didn't hear me just say, um, that website link, just go to our show notes. Uh, it's right there on your app. It's on the website and you'll be able to connect with, um, the people on this show. They love hearing from guests. So if, if you can really resonate with someone, Reach out to them, tell you, tell them thank you, or um, you know, ask them advice if you have questions. Uh, the people on this show are so humble and honest and open, and they want to hear from you, uh, just like we do. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email, give us a phone call. All that is in the show notes as well. So I won't even tell you what it is. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and it is brought to us by Athletic Brewing. They are the makers of amazing non-alcoholic craft beer. I love to have it myself. I can drink a few and not have to worry about not being able to drive or, or, or not feeling great the next morning. And also aftershocks. They are headphones that don't go in your ears so you can stay safe when you're training for your next adventure and not have to worry about not hearing a car behind you or you know, heck, a mountain lion running up behind you. That was the guy that got attacked by the mountain lion a few weeks ago or a month ago now, a couple months ago. One thing he said is he was not wearing headphones, and that was an important reason he was able to turn around quick enough to defend himself from the mountain lion attack. He said if he would have had headphones in, chances are he wouldn't have ever heard it, and who knows, it could have come from behind and caught him off guard completely, and it could be a totally different story. But, not to scare you, but (laughs) it's important to be able to hear your surroundings when you're out there running or training. Anyway... Uh, there, we can get a deal on those, on both of those. The deal is listed in our show notes as well. So go there and check it out. All right, let's get into this interview with Jeff Smoot. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today we have Jeff Smoot. He is an author. He is a climber. He has written tons of books, guidebooks. Uh, He's based in the Seattle area, involved with getting underserved youth out in the woods, out in the forest. He's a semi-retired attorney. Uh, He he got your hands in a lot of things, Uh, but welcome to the show, Jeff. Uh, Thank you, Mason. It's great to to be here. Yeah, man. And you recently wrote a book called Hangdog Days that isn't out yet. Yeah, that's right. It'll be out uh, officially April 1st, although I hear there will be some copies available before then. Well, perfect, man. So, uh, well, it says you're a semi-retired attorney. Um, is that something you still kind of kick around? Uh, I am still practicing, and uh, semi-retired kind of means that for the past couple of years I've been working on the book and haven't been able to practice full-time. And so um, for right now, um, you know, unless this book turns out to be something phenomenal, I'll be, I'll be going back to that for sure. Man, so so I read through uh, some of your biography. You wrote a lot of guidebooks in in uh, how to books as well. Uh, yes, I did. I started back in the oh, late 1980s writing 
uh, well, uh, you know, I started writing guidebooks in during the 80s, uh, but my first uh, major guidebook that was published by someone other than me and my photocopier uh, came out in the early 90s. Wow. And now how many books is it to date? I don't know. It's more than 10. More than you can count on two hands. And they're all. it looks like they're all based in the Pacific Northwest, too. Uh, yeah, the climbing guide is to Washington only. And then I've done some hiking guides in the uh, Alpine Lakes Wilderness. I think the, the farthest reaching guidebook that I have done has been to the Cascade Volcanoes. So that stretches all the way from Mount Lassen uh, up to um, uh, Garibaldi in BC. Although Garibaldi is not in the Cascades, I know for those listeners who are going to say, hey, wait a minute. But I hmm. included it because it was part of the kind of the volcanoes of the whole Cascade Range extended. Right, right. Yeah, those don't necessarily follow the same geographical borders that we build around ourselves. <laughs> right. But yeah, that's an awesome part of the country. I, I every time I go, I wish I could spend spend more time. You know, I, I I just think it's underrated in a lot of ways. I know probably not for you because you're there and everyone around you probably explores it like crazy. But I just don't feel like it gets the attention it deserves. Uh, it it could be. Um, I mean, I don't ski, so I don't appreciate the winter as much as most of my friends do. But uh, yeah, it's a fun place to live. There's always something to do. Uh, and just, you know, people are really into the outdoors, They're, you know, skiing, climbing, hiking, uh, whatever. It, you can do it all here. Wow. So wh why don't you tell us what, what is your background in adventure sports? Like what kind of sports do you like to do and what kind of the things have you done? Primarily, I'd say I'm a climber now. Um, I started when I was a teenager, I got interested in the outdoors, uh, did some hiking, did some mountaineering, uh, decided early on after too many rainy slogs up a volcano that that wasn't my favorite thing to do. Uh, but getting, getting out on the rock on a sunny day, uh, just really, really enthused me. And so I, uh, I really took to rock climbing more than anything, for a number of years. And so I'd say from age about 16 through about 26, a whole decade there, I was a dedicated rock climber. And that's during the period from the late 1970s into the late 1980s. Um, and then, you know, after I stopped rock climbing, so, you know, so much, I got married, had a kid and, uh, thought, well, I, I love the outdoors still. So I, I turned, turned into a hiker uh, did a lot of long distance solo hiking, uh, until my daughter could start going with me. And then we went out and did a lot of adventuring out in the mountains around here. And then I, um, started writing guidebooks to hiking. Um, but eventually I came back to climbing and I've been really into it for the last couple of years, uh, trying to kind of get back into some semblance of shape so I can do some of the unfinished projects from 30 years ago now. Oh, that's something else. So w when you were climbing before, did you did you stay up there in the northwest or did you travel around and do some of the iconic climbs? Uh, I traveled around uh, quite a bit uh, for a few years anyway. I was on the road uh, several times a year uh, for a couple of weeks here, a few months there, uh, pretty much uh, in the western U.S., I didn't. I didn't get out east, and I didn't get out of the country unless uh, Squamish counts as out of the country. 
uh, which it's all, you know, it's so close here. We don't think of it as being in another country, except right. now you have to have a passport to get across the border. Whereas before you just kind of went across and came back. Uh, so I, yeah, just mostly the West coast, all up and down the coast, Yosemite, Joshua tree, Smith rock, uh, El Dorado Canyon, uh, various places, uh, in the West. Well, a lot of those places are kind of the Mecca create collectively the Mecca anyway. So you saved yourself a lot of travel going other places. I mean, you can't really beat, can't really beat Yosemite Valley um, anywhere in the world, in, in my opinion. But obviously, everyone's going to be biased to what's close to them. But Yosemite is definitely at the top of lots and lots of people's list. Smith Rock as well, and El Dorado Canyon for sure. So that was an interesting time in climbing, and that's kind of the topic of your new book, um, which is called Hang Dog Days. Uh, do you mind getting into like what what is the what is that book about? Sure. I, when I started uh, really getting serious about rock climbing, I was uh, pretty heavily influenced by uh, Mark Hudon and Max Jones. Uh, they did a lot of climbing all over the country. Uh, a lot of hard stuff. They were pushing you know the difficulty of climbing five twelve up into five thirteen at the time, and um, you know I. Early on, I had read about you know Robbins and Harding and you know the nose and the Solithay wall and all of the controversies about bolting on the Dawn wall and 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 all of that. And then um, the free climbing revolution of the 1970s, where you know John Backer, Ron Kauk, uh, John Long, Jim Bridwell, Henry Barber, Jim Erickson, Steve Wunsch, all those guys uh, were kind of you know turning the sport into more of an athletic pursuit, pushing the, the, the standards high, especially in Yosemite and in Colorado. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I want to be, I want to be like those guys. Uh, and then when I read uh, Hudon and Jones and their you know, Long, Hard, and Free article and their Astro Man article, I just like, you know, that was it. I had to, I had to get down to Yosemite. Uh, I was going to, you know, become a 512 climber. I was going to climb Astro Man. I was going to do all that stuff. So I really got into it. Um, and then um, during the early 80s, I started traveling and I ended up hooking up with Todd Skinner. And I met him one day in Joshua Tree. He and Paul Piano were climbing down there. And uh, I just kind of fell into their camp. I kind of thought I'd stumbled into a cult. They were just the, the, the funniest, funniest guys and their, you know, they're just their philosophy and attitude was just so, so fun. They were just fun to be around. So I, you know, over the course of several years, I ended up going on uh, multiple road trips with Todd, and uh, that kind of led me into um, Yosemite in 1985 when Todd uh, decided that he was going to free climb a route called the Stigma, and he was on his quest to climb the hardest routes in the country. And he was trying to, uh, he was trying to find a route that would be 514, the next number grade. Uh, by that time, 513 had been fairly established and people were, were looking for the next hardest thing. And so Todd thought he might've found it on that route. And, uh, he ended up free climbing the, the first pitch of the route, sort of, it was a very controversial ascent. And, um, so I was there in the valley when he did that, and 
then my you know my travels continued. I left the valley and went to Smith Rock with uh, Kim Kerrigan and Jeff Wigand, a couple of Australian climbers who were in the states that year. And when we went to Smith Rock, um, I'd been there in 1983 for the first time, and there was nobody there. For two days, there was nobody there except me and this one other guy who'd pulled up in his pickup truck, uh, and we went climbing together. So we basically had the whole park to ourselves for two days. Wow. And that's, you know, it's hard to imagine now. But um, so in in 85, when I went there with uh, Kerrigan and Wigan, and Johnny Woodward was along on that trip as well. Uh, again, we showed up uh, that and that morning had the park entirely to ourselves. And so uh, I took those guys on kind of a tour of some of the, the routes I knew about and uh, – it was really amazing to watch these really good foreign climbers just, you know, cranking up all these hard routes that nobody had even you know, knew about, really. Um, and so I started um, going back to Smith Rock and hanging out with Alan Watts and and the crew down there, um, you know, Brooke Sandal and uh, Chris Grover, and uh, climbing down there. So I was with Alan Watts when he did the first uh, free ascent of the east face of Monkey Face. Uh, in the fall of 85, which was, he rated it 513D, which at that time was the hardest free climb in the States. Then we went on a trip down to Yosemite uh, so Alan could try to, to uh, repeat the stigma. And, and he was able to do that. And from that, just a lot of controversy erupted, a lot of articles in the magazines. Um, why? Why? Because... Um, well, going back to the um, early days of free climbing, especially in, in Yosemite uh, with John Backer and, and those guys, uh, they viewed uh, free climbing something uh, as more of a, a purist, a, um, a means of ascent, but not really a, a gymnastic exercise um, as we view it today. So they their approach was you, you try hard, you fall, you lower off, you pull the rope. If you're really a staunch traditionalist, you pull the gear before you try again. You know, there's no there's no hanging around on the rope. There's no practicing the moves beforehand. There's no pre-placing of gear or leaving gear in place even between attempts. Um, you try, you fall, you pull the rope, you try again. And uh, the uh, you know Todd and Alan uh, had taken on a different approach. They were they were hang dogging for one. Um, which at you know that time was kind of something new. Could you define that for people that don't know what that is? Sure, I can. So hang dogging is when you fall off a route, you don't lower off, you hang there on the rope, you maybe shake out your arms, you rest, and you try those moves again while you're while you're hanging there. Um, so you don't start over. You work the route in sections. Uh, mm. and, um, and it gives you an advantage over those who lower the ropes and start over or pull the ropes and start over because, um, you know, you get to, you get to practice while you're hanging up there. And that was kind of viewed as not really fair. It was cheating in a way. Man, that's interesting. Cause I don't, I just, it's just not the case anymore, you know? No, it's certainly not the case anymore. So, and you know, the big, the I guess the biggest earlier, earliest practitioner of hang dogging was Ray Jardine. Uh, he had come to Yosemite from Colorado in the early 1970s, and by the mid 70s, he was um, 
he, I think he'd established most of the new 512 routes in Yosemite at the time. Um, because he was, you know, his approach was to, to, you know, practice the route while hanging after falling off and then coming back later and connecting the moves all together. So, uh, you know, Jardine was considered a, a, you know, a big time hang dogger. Um, but one thing that people may not know is that he would come back and actually red point routes before he claimed the first free ascent. So red pointing wasn't a, a term at the time, but he would practice the route. Um, and you know, if he fell off, basically that day was used to work the route and then he would come back another day and try to connect it all in one go. And only after he'd done that would he say that it was, uh, you know, a completed first free ascent. He did the first ascent of a route called the Phoenix, uh, which is uh, considered the first 513 uh, in Yosemite. And uh, he also had the advantage of using friends. Uh, the, the new camming devices that he developed, you know, made crack climbing so much easier and safer because you could just plug those things in. Whereas, uh, right. you know, before you had to slot nuts in as you hung there and you'd, you'd burn out really fast if you had to do a lot of that. Mm. I like picking, trying to find the right nut to put in the crack. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And you just, I mean, that's wasted energy, wasted time, which is hugely important when you're, you know, you only have a limited amount of energy and it's taken so much just to be secure. Athletic Brewing is pioneering non-alcoholic craft beer. Yeah, I said non-alcoholic craft beer. And there's a number of reasons you might want to do that. Whether you're training for an event, which a lot of our listeners are, or, you know, if, you, if you're babysitting and don't want to be drunk in case something happens. I mean, stuff happens, but you still want to sit down and enjoy the game and have a beer. This is an incredible option for a full-flavored, full-bodied beer. Each can is only 50 to 70 calories with IPA, golden ales, stouts, and tons of seasonal offerings. Athletic Brewing is a great option if you want that craft brewery taste. Uh, but not deal with the effects of alcohol itself. Uh, if you'd like to save 15% on your first order, go to athleticbrewing.com and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout. So so getting back to um, the controversy over the stigma, um, one of the things that uh, Todd did that really irritated the, the Yosemite climbers was he pre-placed, he fixed pins in the crack before he climbed it. He put a half dozen lost arrow pitons in about six feet apart. So he basically turned the crack into a sport climb. Hmm. And uh, that really went against the traditional ground up approach where, you know, you climbed, you placed the gear as you climbed and you, you had to go from the bottom to the top in one go before you could do it. Uh, so, so Todd did that and that they didn't like that very much. Was it legal to to put those into the rock? Oh sure, yeah, yeah, P- absolutely. Pitons were, you know, there was a long-standing tradition of using pitons in in uh, in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't uh, people preferred not to use pitons because of the the damage to the cracks, the pin scarring that would occur with repeated, uh, right. you know, piton placement and removal. And in fact, the the stigma probably was only f- free climbable because of past aid climbs leaving pin scars in the crack. Uh, mm. So Todd, Todd, I think Todd felt that he couldn't safely hang on and place gear 
and lead the climb. And so he resorted straight away to uh, putting pitons in for protection. Um, and so pre-placing gear was one of those no-nos. Uh, so it wasn't really, it, it, it wasn't uh, given a lot of credence by the, the valley climbers. They just dismissed it as a glorified aid climb. And also Todd, he stopped short of the end of the crack. The crack went on another 20 feet, um, but he stopped at a convenient stance where you could let go with both hands and figured, well, that's, that's good enough. The rest of it isn't that hard, so I can stop here. And so, <laughs> right. so, that, so you know, it was kind of he was uh, employing all his tricks and, you know, what was good enough for Todd was good enough for Todd, but maybe not good enough for, for some other people. So when Alan came down to, to, to try it, I convinced him not to place pitons in the crack and to try it from the ground up uh, just to see if he could do it because maybe he could and if he could then maybe you know that would add some legitimacy to to the climb and so he tried it that way and uh, he was able to do it fairly quickly he did it, it only in only two days of effort which was really phenomenal uh, and placing gear on the lead all the way up and then he uh he did finish the pitch all the way to the end of the crack uh, with a, a few shenanigans because he hadn't planned on doing that. So he had to haul some gear up with the fixed rope I had next to it to um, have gear to finish the pitch. And, you know, there was hangdogging and all of that. And But, you know, he did it pretty pretty quickly and in pretty good style compared to what Todd had done. And so uh, we kind of thought, well, that would you know, make it a legitimate climb, but it was, it was also kind of dismissed as just, you know, a, a glorified aid climb. Uh, some of the, some of the detractors were, were <clears throat> saying, oh, you know, he, ch Alan chopped a buckets in the crack and, you know, hung his way all the way up it, which really wasn't the case, but, you know, he, it, it, it was progress. And I don't think, uh, that was the kind of progress that the Yosemite climbers really wanted to see at the time. There's a lot going on at this. This is such an interesting time in climbing culture and history. Um, what was it like to be there and witnessing all this? Did did you did you appreciate the moment, or were you just kind of doing your thing and living your life and being young and not really knowing just how this was paving the way for so many decades worth of climbing? You know, at the time, I I was just kind of hanging out and going with the flow. You know, I'd I'd kind of come on the trip thinking I was going to do a lot of the the eighty five trip with Todd. I thought I was going to be doing a lot of climbing with Todd, uh, but he really focused on working um, routes, uh, what we'd probably call projecting today. He was just like, I'm going to climb this route until I've done it, and so he would spend you know three, four, five days, two weeks, whatever it took, to climb a route that he had decided that he was going to climb. And that was one thing about Todd, you know, he was persistent as all get out. Um, if he thought he could do something, he would keep trying until he succeeded, even if everyone else thought it was impossible. And so um, when he decided to start working on the stigma, um, I got bored with that really fast. <laughs> right. I would go off and do, you know, do some actual climbing instead of just, you know, going to the same 60 foot pitch day after day after day and, and, you know, making three feet of progress and thinking that was a good day's climbing. So uh, I, st and I started hanging out with some of the Valley locals, um, Charles Cole, Steve Schneider. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of was fitting in with them until the, you know, the news of what Todd was doing got out. And since I was 
with Todd, I, I kind of felt like I was, um, you know, guilty by association. And, uh, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I wasn't really into it. I thought it was kind of dumb. So I didn't go out every day and I wasn't taking pictures of it cause I just didn't really grasp the historical significance of it as it was happening. When I went back with Alan Watts, um, I had a better idea, a better sense of, uh, that, you know, there was some history being made here. Something was changing, uh, after, you know, spending some time climbing with Alan at Smith Rock, uh, watching him do his, uh, first free ascent of the East face of monkey face. And, uh, and then going down to Yosemite, I just thought, you know, this should, this should be done right. It's kind of my attitude with Alan when we went down there. You know, he was, he had pitons along. He was ready to put some pitons in just like Todd had done. And I was like, you know, you shouldn't, Alan. You should really give it a try and try to do it as close to ground up as you can. Um, just to really, you know, you're, we're doing something new and important here. You should, you should, you should try hard. So he did. So back in that day, how did, how did word get out when someone did something extraordinary or new in the climbing world? Like when you, was it just a matter of witnesses and, and taking pictures and trusting the people that were there not to have been lying about it or something? Cause, cause it seemed like word got out and there was relatively good, uh, records kept of a lot of this. Yeah, well, word got out in a couple of different ways. Um, I'd say, you know, you told you told your friends that it had happened, and word spread through the grapevine that way. Um, of course, um, in Climbing Magazine, they had Base Camp, which was the report of all the new routes that had been done everywhere. And so, if you did a new route or an important first ascent or free ascent, then it would get reported to the magazine, and there would be a, a, a write-up about it. And if it wasn't that important, it might be a few words, and if it was important, there might be a half a page devoted to it with photographs. And then there was the, uh, you know, the 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 slander that got spewed out. <laughs> I can imagine by the people who who weren't as exactly as happy about it. Um, so when Alan did did the stigma. Uh, we had uh, the, the accompaniment of uh, we, what we called the Cookie Cliff Hooters. When Alan went back the second day to work on on the route, there were a, a group of uh, locals hiding off in the bushes or behind some boulders somewhere. We couldn't exactly see where they were, but uh, they uh, they were watching. And, and every once in a while, they would yell out, "Hang, Dogger!" Hang dogger <laughs> and and go whoo and just making all kinds of racket over there in the bushes and so it was like you know at first it was like who are those guys and after a while it was like well that's funny those guys are funny so yeah so I'm sure that those guys had a story to tell about it and it was probably different than what really happened but and uh, but you know it, looking back on it it was all really really comical but. Um, yeah, so there were people watching. There were always people watching. Uh, I look back. Uh, Mark Hudon told me a story about when he and Max Jones tried to do the. Um, they tried to do a complete free ascent of the Rostrum North Face, including the the roof. And uh, he said while they were on the route, he looked over to the to the side and saw John Backer over there with a with a scope watching to to see to see what they were doing and to see if he could catch them cheating. Holy cow. <laughs> That's incredible. That's 
That's funny. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of, uh, I guess a lot at stake, but man, it's, it's such a fascinating world. You were there at an interesting time in the late seventies and the eighties. And, and what do you think about, what do you think about climate blowing up in the, in recent years? I mean, they won an Oscar recently uh, with Alex Honnold's film. Isn't that crazy? It is. It is crazy. I had to. I had to look back and find the picture. The only picture I have with me and Jimmy Chin in it, just so I can brag about how I knew Jimmy Chin for like five minutes. Oh, how'd you, how'd you know him? <laughs> just met him somewhere. I just. I, I. I met him at in line at the bar at the American Alpine Club dinner a couple years ago. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, climbing is. It's mainstream now. I mean, it's getting there. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's mainstream. And, um, you know, I know that, uh, how you asked how I feel about it. And I have mixed, I have mixed feelings about it because, you know, I came from the day, like I said, back in 83, the first time I went to Smith Rock, I had the place really to myself. And for, you know, for, for a couple of years, every time I would go, there would really only be a handful of people there. What, what was that area used for? It was, or is it just some rocks next to a river out near Bend, Oregon, or, or was, or was it established as a climbing location by that point? It, well, it was established as a climbing location. They'd been climbing there for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, Alan Watts's dad had been one of the early pioneers of Smith Rock climbing. But it was, you know, it was just a, it was a park. It was a state park that was set aside to preserve the, you know, preserve the area, kind of a unique geologic area mm-hmm. and a, a unique recreational area. So it wasn't really, you know, preserved for climbing. Um, you know, you could, you could hike, you could watch wildlife, you could do all kinds of things there. Um, you know, it really, yeah, it really blew up into a climbing area. You know, partly I, I blame myself for that. Uh, because I wrote an article for Mountain Magazine that came out in early 1986 mm. that that had this great shot of Alan Watts on the cover uh, climbing a route called Chain Reaction. And it was just, you know, I, that, that photograph to me was the shot heard around the world uh, because that spring the park was flooded with climbers from all over the world. Um, you know, it used to be you, you might be the only car in the parking lot and when i went down there in like you know early april of 86 you you couldn't park within half a mile of the trailhead and so uh yeah it really it really blew up and you know there there were climbers all over and they were all they were all hangdogging and having a, a great old time swearing at themselves every time they fell off uh which was you know really quite quite a change quite a sudden and shocking change and so i wasn't really pleased with myself for having, you know, blown the place up. But um, the locals, they, they thought it was great. I mean, they were a little shocked at how big the response had been, but they, you know, it was their, it was their baby and they were happy to show it off. They, they, they loved the attention it was getting and that, that, you know, climbers were coming from all over the world um, who were, you know, good climbers who were capable of, you know, doing all these 512 and 513 rounds. So, so that was, uh, you know, interesting uh to be there to watch that transition and uh you know it's it's only grown uh to this day um i think climbing gyms had a lot to do uh with the uh acceptance of the sport you know on a larger level and and you say your feelings are mixed about it though yeah yeah they are i mean 
you know, you, you, you areas that, I, you know, I'm just, I'm some old crusty old guys like, oh, <laughs> get these kids off my lawn. You know, this is, I, this is my climbing area. You guys get out of here. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's great that there are so many people who love doing this cause it is really a great sport. And I, you know, I wouldn't wish to like have people just like stop and go do something else. Not really, although it might be nice if some of them did because areas are really getting overcrowded, I think. And, um, it, you know, it's having some, some effects. It, it's an ongoing thing. It's always been happening. It just seems like it's magnified in scale with the, you know, the, the, the people, the overdevelopment, the, you know, the litter and other issues. And then, um, what I've read recently, the, uh, you know, the manufacturing of routes on a large scale at some areas, uh, and I'm talking about it's 10 sleep Canyon. The, the controversy has just kind of erupted. Where's that? It's in Wyoming and I haven't been there, but, um, there, apparently there's some controversy because, uh, some climbers or climber have been, you know, blatantly manufacturing routes on blank cliffs. Um, so drilling holds, uh, just creating, uh, routes, uh, as a route setter might set routes in a gym on rock that is, um, you know, otherwise unclimbable or not climbable by anybody, but, you know, some superhuman from the future. What would you rather see in a place like that? Someone attempt to climb it, um, naturally via more of a natural route and then let the quote infrastructure build around that yeah i i think you know there's something to be said for blank unclimbable rock i mean not every inch of every piece of rock needs to have a route on it and you know looking back at the traditional approach i mean i am more of a traditionalist than anything i think you climb the rock as you find it and if you can work out if you can puzzle out the moves um and climb a piece of rock I mean, that's, that's great, but you don't take the rock and go, well, I can't climb that, but if I added a bunch of holds, I could climb it. And since I'm adding a bunch of holds, why don't I make some really cool moves like I do in the gym? You know, the rock is as it is, and we are supposed to challenge ourselves against it, not create our own version of what, uh, you know, the route should be, but take it as, as, as we find it. And so I think that's the I'm I'm a big fan of blank unclimbable rock because there's somebody who's going to come along in the future and figure out how to do it. And if we, you know, if we chip some holds or drill some holds uh to to make it in our image then we're we're robbing a future climber of, you know, something really special. And we're just, you know, I think it just defeats the the whole purpose of climbing of challenge. This episode is sponsored by Aftershocks. They are headphones with bone conducting technology. So they rest in front of your ears, not inside your ears like most headphones. And the benefit is they keep your ears free. I would have felt so much safer on my bike trips if I would have had these. But, you know, I'm on the bike for 12 hours. I'm not going to not listen to something. So I did put myself at risk a lot. And I would highly recommend something that allows you to keep your ears free and be able to listen to this show, or music if you choose that, but come on, you want to listen to this show. They have a six-hour battery life, awesome audio quality, and you can get $50 off the Trex Air Adventure Bundle 
or the Trex Titanium Adventure Bundle at asp.aftershocks.com. And that is also in the show notes. Yeah, and and speaking of challenge, your your book kind of talks about that first ascent of a 514 route. For those that aren't as familiar, that's basically just you know, on the Yosemite decimal system of just a level of difficulty. And that was a level, a level of difficulty that wasn't, hadn't been achieved yet. Was that kind of held as like a Holy grail before it was achieved? And then what was it like after that was climbed? I'll talk you through the grades up through to 514. So when I started climbing in the late 1970s, 512 was really the hardest thing there was. I mean, that was as hard as it got. Mm. And Back then, I had no concept of what a 512 route would be. You know, I thought it would be, you know, like clinging to overhanging glass. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. what what could I'm like, oh my god, you know, only John Backer and you know those guys can do this. You know, it turns out it's it's very difficult. There's a lot of fingertips involved, but it's uh, it's not impossible. But, um, so by the late 1970s, there had been a couple of routes done that were. 513 uh and they rated them 512 plus because nobody really wanted to say that they'd done a 513 you didn't want to brag hey i did a 513 uh so you ended up with routes like the phoenix and uh, the grand illusion a tony Unero route uh being called 512 plus although you know people who'd done them pretty much assumed that it was harder than 512 and it must be 513 but they kind of waited till other people came and did it and verified it before they could really say that they had advanced uh, the ratings up to the next level of difficulty. So I'm sure there was a lot of misinformation around that time where people just claiming this and that before things were officially verified. Well, that started in the 80s, mostly. I mean, during during the 1970s, there wasn't a lot of over overrating. People tended to undergrade things, if anything, because they didn't want to, you know, be called out for, for bragging or blowing up something that turned out to be not that difficult. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it could be a lot of uh, repercussions of that to your image. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think back to Jim Collins, a Colorado climber who did the uh, first free ascent of a route called Genesis. And he, he, you know, he spent days and days working this route. And uh, when he finally did it, you know, he called it 512 plus and I, he was, you know, like this, you know, this is harder than anything. It's probably 513. He, he, he renamed the route God's golden hour of power. He was so, so full of it. And, uh, you know, it turned out it's 512 C, you know, it, it's a middling 512 route. It wasn't, it wasn't 513. And then, you know, the, the, the Brits and the, the French climbers came over and flashed it. Uh, Jerry Moffat top roped it in his tennis shoes. So, um, you know, that kind of brought it down to size. And so, you know, f- a lot of climbers didn't really want to come out and say, oh, yeah, I just climbed the hardest route in the world, you guys, uh, because they'd get, they'd get knocked back, you know, a little bit if it didn't turn out to be true. So a lot of sandbagging, I guess, is what was happening there. But then during, yeah, during the, the 80s, a lot more uh, climbers who were kind of out trying to make a name for themselves were out tr- trying real hard to do the hardest new climb. And, you know, as 513 became fairly well established, uh, people were looking at, well, the next, you know, we need to, somebody needs to climb a 514. 
And the letter grades, I mean, really, you know, a 513A and a 513B are, that's a, that's a, a you know, a, a step up in grade. So people weren't really looking at it quite like that. Like, I don't know the French ratings so well, but, you know, an 8A is a lot easier than an 8B. And so uh, same with a 513B versus a 513C. So 514 um, was kind of, you know, it was just one step up from 513D, really, but it just seemed to have, yeah, that kind of holy grailness to it, that it was just like, you know, the next frontier. So a few climbers were really pushing hard 513 routes and scouring the countryside looking for uh, a route that might be th- that that 514 route. And what route was that? Well, the the first one in the U.S. that was done and I'll, looking back, I mean, uh, Wolfgang Golick had done a route that was the equivalent of 514 in Australia. Uh, I forget, it wasn't Punks in the Gym. I can't remember the name of it. But um, he had done a route there that uh, was t- it turned out to be a, a 514 on the American scale. But in America, uh, the first 514 done was to bolt or not to be at Smith Rock. And that was done in 1986 by uh, J.B. Trubeau. And uh, he'd, been, he'd actually been invited to Smith Rock by Alan Watts. This, this route was an Alan Watts project. Alan had been working on it for a long time. But he'd been climbing so much, his, uh, the tendonitis and arthritis in his fingers was so bad, he just was really having a hard time climbing hard routes. And uh, so he had, he had met uh, J.B. at a competition i think in france and mentioned uh, smith rock and actually mentioned this route to him and said you should come over and try this and so he did and he came over and, and did it and you know some people thought well he came over and stole the route and while he did come over and steal some other routes later uh, that one wasn't really one that he stole because he'd been invited by alan and alan said you know here do it and so he did and that that ended up being the first consensus 514 in the country. And what was that like going through the climbing world? What is it just a huge deal? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, pe- you know, people were, I think by that time were like, Oh, which, you know, who's going to do it and which routes it going to be and where's it going to be? You know, there, you just, you just didn't know if maybe Christian Griffith was going to find a route in, in El Dorado that turned out to be that hard or Todd was going to find something on his limestone cliff somewhere um, or, or Smith Rock would, would yield it. And Alan knew this route would be 514. He knew it was harder than anything he'd done before. And so uh, maybe Alan invited JB over to do it, knowing that, you know, it, it, the first 514 could be at Smith Rock. Even if he couldn't do it, it would bring a lot of prestige to the area. And, and so is that basically what the book is about, covering that journey to 514? Um yeah, yeah. It just it it really it's I mean it's a memoir, so it's about my kind of my experience coming through that and witnessing everything that happened and kind of the stories that um you know about Todd and Alan and and Hugh Her and all the other people that I hung out with. Um and but yes, it just kind of traces that thread as as people try to push the next frontier uh you know be the first to climb a 514. And then what happened afterwards as, uh, you know, Todd and Paul uh, turned their attention to El Capitan and did the first free ascent of the Salathe Wall. 
Wow, that is that is awesome. So, so, so what's the pressing edge, or the, or the not the pressing, the cutting edge of the climbing world now? I know that we're in the five fifteen era. Do, is it scientifically possible to get beyond that? <laughs> um, you know, if you if if I said if I said it wasn't possible, I'd be I'd be lying. Um, I, there's a great quote by uh, uh, Vladimir Nabokov that every limit presupposes something beyond it. And so if you, if you think you've reached the limit, then you, that just assumes that there must be something beyond that limit. And, um, I think the current hardest free climb is, uh, 515D. So I suppose, uh, I know that people are out there trying to find something harder, the first 516. But I mean, what, what is the limit? I mean, Alex Honnold free soloed, um, El Capitan, um, you know, 15 year old kids are free climbing the nose. Uh, you know, the, the dawn wall went free. Who, who would have thought that a decade ago? And so, so you just think, well, you know, what's next? And, 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 and something I think that the book imparts is, um, you know, that everything builds on everything. So, you know, it, none of this comes out of a vacuum. This is all kind of, everybody's standing on the shoulders of those who came before them. And uh, the the people like Todd, uh, who said that's not impossible, I can do it, and persisted and did it to show people that if you know if you may think it's impossible, but you know if you try hard, you may pull it off. And you know I think that that's uh, that's what we see. I mean, you look at the Dawn Wall and you know Tommy Caldwell's obsession with that. Um, you know, there were people who really just doubted that it was going to happen. Like, you know, no yeah. way. <laughs> you know, we, we interviewed him in December uh, to talk about that. And you should check it out because he, he talked about it. it the, the Making it happen was harder than actually doing it because of the preparation, because of uh, his partner, Kevin Jorgson, not really knowing how if his life literally could could allow the time and to to in the devotion that it would take to get that done and who would have thought it would have been done by a guy with a missing finger you know what i mean like tell someone two decades ago that i mean it's it's amazing yeah yeah and that's that's the thing it's the the beauty of it is you just don't know unless you try and and you try hard and you have the vision to keep trying and trying and trying even though you fail um you know, if, if you if you see see the light at the end of the tunnel, you keep going, and and so you know those guys did. Wow. So so how does it feel to be back in the climbing world after taking a hiatus? Oh, you know, I I feel like uh, yeah, I wish I wish like a lot of the people I talked to in my book, I wish I could go back thirty years and do it all again. When I was you know uh, like what what did Warren Harding say? I, I, I wish I was taller and better looking, but, um, I, I just, you know, the things that I didn't do back then, I wish I could go back and do them now, but you know, it's, uh, I may be, I may be a few years past my prime. Although, you know, I see the, I see those articles about those guys in their sixties and seventies doing five thirteens and I think, well, you know, I, I maybe if I try hard, I, I look at Mark Hudon, he's uh, 62. Two, I think, and he he was out climbing five twelves last year, and so wow. I, I I don't I don't have any excuses. I just have to I just have to try hard. 
Yeah, carve out some time, make it happen. That's what we talk about on the show a lot is, you know, this is this has got to be a priority in your life. You know, life is demanding and lots of responsibilities, but at some point take some time to do something like this. We were talking to a guy the other day, he's been working, oh gosh, all his life and he wants to do the Appalachian Trail and feels a lot of guilt about it. And I'm like, man, you've been working your whole life for what? To do this, to do something like this. Um, but it's hard to break away and, and take advantage of the time we have with our, with our bodies being capable. It's an interesting, difficult balance for sure. Yeah. Looking back, thinking back, uh, reminded me what you said, reminded me of Todd Skinner and his, he was always, he was always reminding people, um, not to wait that, you know, if you wanted to do something, you, you better get on it because, you know, you, you're not going to be f- strong forever. You're not going to be able to be out on the road forever. You're not going to live forever. And so if you want to do something, you need to do it now. And one of, one of his favorite lines uh, that I just always remember is, you don't want to be lying on your deathbed 60 years from now wishing, if only I'd climbed that godforsaken rock. <laughs> yeah, how many people think that? <laughs> <laughs> but you know i uh, nowadays i think it every day it's like yeah you know i you know now it's now it's maybe 30 years or 20 years i don't know so how many you know wh- when am i going to be laying on my deathbed and what am i going to what am i going to wish i had done uh mm. you know I, I better figure it out and i better get on it wow there you know there's an article a famous article about a nurse's uh a nurse wrote a book about the top five regrets that she heard over the years of people on their deathbeds and she kept records of it and wrote it down every time someone mentioned it and uh it's amazing what she found uh, I'll, I'll have to send you the article you can also google it but yeah it, okay it put things into perspective for sure i read i have it saved on my favorites right here and i read it from time to time but you know it's it's a lot easier looking back and being critical you know in the moment it's hard when you don't know the outcome of certain things and things are pressing and, but it is a good reminder to say, okay, what will be important 30, 40, 50 years from now? What will I wish I say I, I've done? Man. Right. Well, what a great way to, uh, to wrap this up. <laughs> so, so how can people follow you, learn more about your books and then get this book specifically? The book will be available for order online. Um, uh, you can go through the Mountaineers Books website, um, and of course there are some other um, online retailers that you could you could look to. It probably will be in in bookstores, and uh, so um, you know look for it at your favorite outdoor shop or just go online and order it. And then I will be doing some touring, so if uh, if you look me up and find out where I'll be, I may be in your town sometime during the summer the spring and summer. Um, so my, let's see, I'm on Facebook, just Jeff Smoot. Um, and if, if you're not sure which one it is, look for the, look for the photograph, uh, that is, uh, rainbow colored. Like I had an infrared picture taken that I use as my, my Facebook picture. Perfect. And then I am, I'm on, uh, I'm on Instagram as well at Smootopia. And then where else? I have a website, the domain name is it's a I'm I'm cheap and I do one of those free websites so it's not like I just have jeffsmoot.com it's uh 
jeffsmood.com at Wix site. So you'll be able to find that. And I'm going to publish as blogs some outtakes from the book, things that didn't make it into the book that I thought should have, but we had a word count. So uh, the manuscript got whittled down and some great stories got taken out. So I'm just going to publish those as standalone blogs so people can, can read some more behind the scenes stuff. Awesome. And, and yeah, share with us where we can get that or just send it to me and I'll put that in the show notes too. I will. Thanks so much for joining us today and carving out some time. This was really fascinating to get a firsthand account of that era of, of the climbing world. And I'm excited about the book. Well, thanks for having me. I feel like I, I didn't, didn't talk enough about everything. There's so, there's so many great stories that, uh, to tell, and we just don't have enough time for that, do we? Well, <laughs> they're going to have to get the book. <laughs> right. You don't want to tell everything on here. That's true. But, uh, but, but there will be an additional extra episode with some excerpts from the book that we will be playing soon. Good, good deal. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us, man. Well, thank you, Mason. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for listening to the episode. Uh, secondly, if you would like to get in touch, you can leave us a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD. You can also send us an email, info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Get a hold of us on Facebook, Instagram, contact us on the website like there's just a thousand ways to do it if you know somebody that would make a good guest for the show whether they're whether it's you or somebody you know with a really cool story or background or does an interesting sport get in touch we'd love to have them on also if you'd like to be a patron aka a supporter of the show patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast you can sign up for as little as a buck a month. You can sign up for five bucks a month. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now. Go to athleticbrewing.com and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout to save 15% off the best tasting and lowest calorie non-alcoholic beer you're ever going to try. Don't forget to save $50 off a headset bundle at asp.aftershocks.com. It's my new favorite way to listen to music and podcasts and stay safe while I run and ride my bike. After all this adventure talk, if you need to go to a place and buy some gear and talk to an expert, go to backpacktribe.com. They can help you choose the right gear and they have the expertise and know-how with each piece of equipment. Now get out there and do something crazy.